Chapter Thirty Four, Part One of East Lynn. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Sally McConnell. East Lynn by Mrs. Henry Wood. Chapter Thirty Four, Part One. An MP for West Lynn. This is not a history of the British Constitution. It does not concern it to relate how or why West Lynne got into hot water with the House of Commons. The House threatened to disenfranchise it, and West Lynne, under the fear, went into mourning for its sins. The threat was not carried out, but one of the sitting members was unseated with ignominy and sent to the right about. Being considerably humiliated thereby, and in disgust with West Lynne, he retired accordingly, and a fresh writ was issued. West Lynne then returned to the Honourable Mr. Ackley, a county nobleman's son, but he died in the very midst of his first session, and another writ had to be issued. Of course the consideration now was, who should be the next lucky man fixed upon, all the notables within ten miles were discussed, not excepting the bench justices. Mr. Justice Hare? No, he was too uncompromising. He would study his own will, but not that of West Lynne. Squire Pinner? He never made a speech in his life, and had not an idea beyond turnips and farming stock. Colonel Bethel? He had no money to spend upon an election. Sir John Dubied? He was too old. By a good twenty years, laughed Sir John to himself. But here we stand, like a pack of noodles, conning over the incapables and passing by the right one, continued Sir John. There's only one man amongst us fit to be our member. Who's that? cried the meeting. Archibald Carlyle. A pause of consternation, consternation at their collective forgetfulness, and then a loud murmur of approaching to a shout filled the room. Archibald Carlyle! It should be no other. If we can get him, cried Sir John, he may decline, you know. The best thing all agreed was to act promptly. A deputation half the length of the street its whole length, if you include the tag-rag and bobtail that attended behind, set off on the spur of the moment to the office of Mr. Carlyle. They found that gentleman about to leave it for the evening, to return home to dinner, for, in the discussion of the all-important topic, the meeting had suffered time to run on to a late hour. Those gentlemen who had dined at a somewhat earlier one had, for once in their lives, patiently allowed their dinners and their stomachs to wait, which is saying a great deal for the patience of a justice. Mr. Carlyle was taken by surprise. "'Make me your member?' cried he merrily. "'How do you know I should not sell you all?' "'We'll trust you, Carlyle, too happy to do that.' "'I'm not sure that I could spare the time.' deliberated Mr. Carlyle. 
Now, Carlyle, you must remember that you avowed to me, no longer than last Christmas, your intention of going into Parliament some time, struck in Mr. Justice Herbert. You can't deny it. Some time, yes, replied Mr. Carlyle, but I did not say when. I have no thoughts of it yet a while. You must allow us to put you in nomination. You must indeed, Mr. Carlyle. There's nobody else fit for it. As good send a pig to the house as some of us. An extremely flattering reason for proposing to shift the honour upon me, laughed Mr. Carlyle. Well, you know what we mean, Carlyle. There's not a man in the whole county so suitable as you. Search it to the extremity of its boundaries. You must know there is not. I don't know anything of the sort, returned Mr. Carlyle. At any rate, we shall do it, for we have determined upon having you. When you walk into Westland tomorrow, you will see the walks alive with placards, Carlyle forever. Suppose you allow me until tomorrow to consider of it, and defer the garnishing of the walls a day later, said Mr. Carlyle, a serious tone peeping out in the midst of his jocularity. Do you not fear the expenses? It was but a glance he returned in answer. As soon as the question had been put, it was stupid old Pinner who propounded it, they had felt how foolish it was, and indeed the cost would be a mere nothing, were there no opposition. Come, decide now, Carlyle, give us your promise. If I decide now, it will be in the negative, replied Mr. Carlyle. It is a question that demands consideration. Give me two tomorrow for that, and it is possible that I may accede to your request. This was the best that could be made of him, and the deputation backed out, and as nothing more could be done, departed to their several dinner-tables. Mr. Dill, who had been present, remained rubbing his hands with satisfaction and casting admiring glances at Mr. Carlyle. "'What's the matter, Dill?' asked the latter. You look as though you were pleased at this movement, and assumed that I should accept it. And so you will, Mr. Archibald, and as to the looking pleased, there's not a man, woman, or child in West Lynn who won't do that. Don't make too sure, Dill. Of which, sir? Of your becoming our member, or of the people looking pleased? <laughs> of either, laughed Mr. Carlyle. He quitted the office to walk home, revolving the proposition as he did so. That he had long thought of some time entering Parliament was certain, though no definite period of the when had fixed itself in his mind. He saw not why he should confine his days entirely to toil, to the work of his calling. Pecuniary considerations did not require it, for his realised property, combined with the fortune brought by Barbara, was quite sufficient to meet expenses, according to their present style of living. Not that he had the least intention of giving up his business, it was honourable as he conducted it, and lucrative, and he really liked it. He would not have been condemned to lead an idle life for the world, but there was no necessity for his being always at it. Mr. Dill made as good a principle as he did, and, if length of service and experience might be counted, a better one, 
he could safely be left to manage during the time it would be necessary for him, Mr. Carlyle, to be in London. He would rather represent Westland than any other spot on the face of the earth, no matter what might be the other's importance, and, as Westland was now in want of a member, perhaps his opportunity had come. That he would make a good and efficient public servant, he believed. His talents were superior, his oratory persuasive, and he had the gift of a true and honest spirit. That he would have the interest of West Lynn at heart was certain, and he knew that he should serve his constituents to the very best of his power and ability. They knew it also. Before Mr. Carlyle had reached East Lynn, he had decided that it should be. It was a fine spring evening. The lilac was in bloom, the hedges and trees were clothed in their early green, and all things seemed full of promise. Even Mr. Carlyle's heart was rejoicing in the prospect open to it. He was sure he would like public life. But in the sanguine moments of realisation or of hope, some dark shade will step in to mar the brightness. Barbara stood at the drawing-room window watching for him. Not in her was the dark shade, her dress was a marvel of vanity and prettiness, and she had chosen to place on her fair hair a dainty headdress of lace, as if her hair required any such ornament. She waltzed up to Mr. Carlyle when he entered, and saucily held up her face, the light of love dancing in her bright blue eyes. "'What do you want?' he provokingly asked putting his hands behind him and letting her stand there. "'Oh, well, if you won't say good evening to me, I have a great mind to say you should not kiss me for a week, Archibald,' he laughed. "'Who would be punished by that?' whispered he. Barbara pouted her pretty lips, and the tears positively came into her eyes. "'Which is as much as to say it would be no punishment to you, Archibald.' "'Don't you care for me?' He threw his arms around her and clasped her to his heart, taking plenty of kisses then. "'You know whether I care or not,' he fondly whispered. But now, will you believe that that unfortunate Lady Isabel had been a witness to this? Well, it was only what his greeting to her had once been. Her pale face flushed scarlet and she glided out of the room again as softly as she had entered it. They had not seen her. Mr. Carlyle drew his wife to the window and stood there, his arms round her waist. Barbara, what should you say to living in London for a few months out of the twelve? London? I am very happy where I am. Why should you ask me that? You are not going to live in London. I am not sure of that. I think I am, for portion of the year. I have had an offer made me this afternoon, Barbara. She looked at him, wondering what he meant, wondering whether he was serious. An offer? What sort of an offer? Of what nature could it be? He smiled at her perplexity. Should you like to see M.P. attached to my name? West Lynn wants me to become its member. A pause to take in the news, a sudden rush of colour, and then she gleefully clasped her hands around his arm, 
her eyes sparkling with pleasure. Oh, Archibald, how glad I am! I knew how you were appreciated, and you will be appreciated more and more. This is right. It is not well for you to remain what you are for life, a private individual, a country lawyer. I am perfectly contented with my lot, Barbara, he said seriously. I am too busy to be otherwise. I know that. Were you but a labouring man, toiling daily for the bread you eat, you would be contented, feeling that you were fulfilling your appointed duty to the utmost, she impulsively said. But, Archibald, can you not still be a busy man at West Lynn, although you do become its representative? If I could not, I should never accept the honour, Barbara. For some few months of the year I must of necessity be in town. But Dill is an efficient substitute, and I can run down for a week or so between times. Part of Saturday, Sunday, and part of Monday. I can always pass here if I please. Of course these changes have their drawbacks, as well as their advantages. Where would the drawbacks be in this? she interrupted. Well, smiled Mr. Carlyle, in the first place I suppose you could not always be with me. Her hands fell, her colour faded. Oh, Archibald! If I do become their member, I must go up to town as soon as elected, and I don't think it will do for my little wife to be quitting her home to travel about just now. Barbara's face wore a very blank look. She could not dissent from Mr. Carlyle's reasoning. And you must remain in London to the end of the session, while I am here, separated. Archibald, she passionately added, while the tears gushed into her eyes, I could not live without you. Then what is to be done? Must I decline it? Decline it? Of course not. I know we are looking on the dark side of things. I can go very well with you for a month, perhaps two. You think so? I am sure so. And, mind, you must not encourage Mamma to talk me out of it. Archibald, she continued, resting her head upon his breast, her sweet face turned up beseechingly to his. You would rather have me with you, would you not? He bent his own down upon it. What do you think about it, my darling? Once more, an opportune moment for her to enter, Lady Isabel. Barbara heard her this time, and sprang away from her husband. Mr. Carlyle turned round at the movement, and saw Madame Vine. She came forward, her lips ashy, her voice subdued. Six months now had she been at East Lynne, and had hitherto escaped detection. Time and familiarity render us accustomed to most things, to danger among the rest, and she had almost ceased to fear recognition, living, so far as that point went, far more peaceably than she had done at first. She and the children were upon the best of terms, she had greatly endeared herself to them. She loved them, and they loved her. Perhaps nature was asserting her own hidden claims. She felt very anxious about William. He seemed to grow weaker, and she determined to make her fears known to Mr. Carlyle. She quitted the parlour. She had heard Mr. Carlyle come in. Crossing the hall, she tapped softly at the drawing-room door, 
and then as softly entered. It was the moment of Mr. Carlyle's loud greeting to his wife. They stood together, heedless of her. Gliding out again, she paced the hall, her hands pressed upon her beating heart. How dared that heart rise up in sharp rebellion at these witness tokens of love? Was Barbara not his wife? Had she not a legal claim to all his tenderness? Who was she that she should resent them in her jealousy? What, though they had once been hers, hers only, had she not signed and sealed her own forfeit of them, and so made room for Barbara? Back to the grey parlour, there she stood, her elbow on the mantelpiece, her eyes hidden by her hand. Thus she remained for some minutes, and Lucy thought how sad she looked. But Lucy felt hungry, and was casting longing glances to the tea-table. She wondered how long her governess meant to keep it waiting. "'Madam Vine,' she cried presently, "'don't you know the tea is ready?' This caused Madam Vine to raise her eyes. They fell on the pale boy at her feet. She made no immediate answer, only placed her hand on Lucy's shoulder. "'Oh, Lucy, dear, I—I I have so many sorrows to bear.' "'The tea will warm you, and there is some nice jam,' was Miss Lucy's offered consolation. "'Their greeting, tender as it may be, is surely over by this time,' thought Lady Isabel, an expression something like mockery curving her lips. "'I will venture again.' "'Only to see him with his wife's face on his breast, and his lips bent upon it. "'But they had heard her this time, and she had to advance.' in spite of her spirit of misery and her whitened features. "'Would you be so good, sir, as to come and look at William?' she asked in a low tone of Mr. Carlyle. "'Certainly.' "'What for?' interjected Barbara. "'He looks very ill. I do not like his looks. I am fearing whether he can be worse than we have thought.' They went to the grey parlour, all three of them, Mr. Carlyle was in first, and had taken a long, silent look at William before the others entered. "'What is he doing on the floor?' exclaimed Barbara, in her astonishment. "'He should not lie on the floor, Madame Vine. "'He lays himself down there at the dusk hour, and I cannot get him up again. "'I try to persuade him to use the sofa, but it is of no use.' "'The floor will not hurt him,' said Mr. Carlyle. This was the dark shade, his boy's failing health. William opened his eyes. Who's that? Papa? Don't you feel well, William? Oh, yes, I'm very well, but I am tired. Why do you lie down here? I like lying here, Papa. That pretty white rabbit of mine is dead. Indeed. Suppose you get up and tell me all about it. I don't know about it myself yet, said William, softly rising. The gardener told Lucy when she was out just now. I did not go. I was tired. He said, What has tired you? interrupted Mr. Carlyle, taking hold of the boy's hand. Oh, nothing. I'm always tired. Do you tell Mr. Wainwright that you are tired? No. Why should I tell him? 
I wish he would not order me to take that nasty medicine, that cod-liver oil. But it is to make you strong, my boy. It makes me sick. I always feel sick after it, Papa. Madame Vine says I ought to have cream. That would be nice. Cream? repeated Mr. Carlyle, turning his eyes on Madame Vine. I have known cream to do a great deal of good in a case like William's, she observed. I believe that no better medicine can be given, that it has, in fact, no substitute. It can be tried, said Mr. Carlyle. Pray give your orders, Madame Vine, for anything you think may be beneficial to him, Mrs. Carlyle added. You have had more experience with children than I. Joyce, what does Wainwright say? interrupted Mr. Carlyle speaking to his wife in his low tone. "'I do not always see him when he comes, Archibald. Madame Vine does, I believe.' "'Oh, dear!' cried Lucy. "'Can't we have tea? I want some bread and jam.' Mr. Carlyle turned round, smiled, and nodded at her. "'Patience is good for little girls, Miss Lucy. Would you like some bread and jam, my boy?' William shook his head. I can't eat jam. I'm only thirsty. Mr. Carlyle cast a long and intent look at him, and then left the room. Lady Isabel followed him, her thoughts full of her ailing child. Do you think him very ill, sir? she whispered. I think he looks so. What does Mr. Wainwright say? He says nothing to me. I have not inquired his true condition. Until tonight it did not come to me that there was any apprehension. Does he look so much worse tonight? Not any worse than customary. Latterly he had looked just like this in the evening. It was a remark of Hannah's that roused my alarm. She thinks he is on the road to death. What can we do to save him? She clasped her hands as she spoke in the intensity of her emotion. She almost forgot as they stood there together talking of the welfare of the child, their child, that he was no longer her husband. Almost, not quite. Utterly impossible would it be for her wholly to forget the dreadful present. Neither he nor the child could again belong to her in this world. A strange rising of the throat in her wild despair, a meek curtsy, as she turned from him, his last words ringing in her ears, I shall call in further advice for him, Madame Vine. William was clinging round Mrs. Carlyle in a coaxing attitude when she re-entered the grey parlour. I know what I could eat, Mamma, if you'd let me have it, cried he, in answer to her remonstrance that he must eat something. What could you eat? Some cheese. Cheese? Cheese with tea? laughed Mrs. Carlyle. For the last week or two he has fancied strange things, the effect of a diseased appetite, exclaimed Madame Vine. But if I allow them to be brought in, he barely tastes them. I am sure, Mamma, I could eat some cheese now, said William. You may have it, answered Mrs. Carlyle. As she turned to leave the room, the impatient knock and ring of a visitor was heard. Barbara wondered who could be arriving at that their dinner hour. Sailing majestically into the hall, her lips compressed, her aspect threatening, came Miss Carlyle.
End of part one of chapter 34.